Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 59 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It's a quiet week in national security law land, Bobby. We've got nothing to talk about, so this will just be a pure Olympic review episode. An Olympic review. Um, Mm, Well, I really like the six foot seven American skier. Okay, that's good. I think Blake Bennett is his name. He he gives me hope that like tall people can be athletic at things other than height enhanced (laughs) sports. So I I have to confess, I didn't know they were actually doing anything with athletes. I thought it was all just commercials because every time Mm. I've turned it on, like that's basically what's been on. Well, that's what you got to do. What Karen and I do, you have to you have to record it Uh and then you know fast forward as as what to say store up some juice. Um, speaking of Karen, uh, I have to give a special shout out as we are sitting down to record this at 2.15 p.m. on Tuesday, February 13th. We have a delicious box of freshly baked chocolate chip and peanut butter chocolate chip cookies from Tiff's Treats. Woohoo! Courtesy of my wife, um, who's apparently for Valentine's Day wants me to get fat. Well, I think what she wants you to do is to have a at least an afternoon's worth of shopping before Valentine's Day afternoon arrives, <laughs> well understanding that you need to do something. So I've been married to Karen for six years. We've been together for, you know, coming on 11 now. Um, trust me, I did not wait until today to shop for Valentine's Not Day. your first rodeo. Not my Very first impressed. rodeo. Very impressed. Anyway, happy Valentine's Day to all of you out there, including the, you know, those of you who are still looking for that special someone. That's right. It's it's Valentine. What did uh, Amy Poehler had earlier today? It's Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. It's a Valentine's Day for everybody. All right. All right. We have things to talk about. In fact, because it do? has been a crazy week. <laughs> um, look, here's here's a quick rundown of our topics. We're going to first talk about Rachel Brand moving on from uh, the number three position at the Justice Department, which raises uh, an occasion for us to remind folks of the order of succession. So far as we know, what it is. Yeah, indeed. Uh, then we will speaking to people moving on. We'll we'll return to the topic of Harvey Richikoff, the. Uh, while uh, convening authority of the military commission process, we'll we'll talk about some new developments relating to his transition out of that office. And while we're on the topic of military commissions, we will touch base with the Nashiri case. <laughs> and apparently, the notion that you can create a learned counsel in a capital case by sending him to a three-day seminar. Hey, that's CLA credit's important. Uh, and then we'll we'll talk about upcoming Derby Day. What's Derby Day? We'll explain. Um, not to be confused with Derby Day. Not to be exactly so. And, and, and according and, and, to the commercials NBC keeps showing me, the Kentucky Derby is coming up on NBC. Um, and also not to be confused with Derby the way that the Brits pronounce it, which is Derby Day, but spelled Derby. Is that they call Derby's Derby? Yeah, well, because oh, right. So, so like the North London Derby, right, is when Tottenham Hotspurs plays Arsenal. Okay, this is great. We got to get Matt Tate in here and uh, have him, you know, confirm your claim <laughs> about this uh, English Confir- usage. What would be confirm my claim? <laughs> I don't know if I can trust this. All right. All right. Uh, speaking of things that uh, you can't that, trust, you can't trust. We've got some ISIS uh, detainees. They are formerly British citizens who are in the custody of Syrian Kurdish allies. And we're going to talk about what their fate might be. And for that matter, what about the fate of the apparently thousands of other Islamic State fighters who are in uh, Kurdish custody in Syria? Uh, That will then lead us to our favorite topic. What about the American citizen, John Doe? And where are we in the Doe v. Mattis case? We've got uh, some... uh, Related insight into what's in the return. As of this recording, we've still not seen the public version, but there's a public version of the ACLU's response to the government's return, and so we can see how the issues are being joined. Uh, But that's not all, folks. If you order now, (laughs) in addition to the Gintu knives, we will throw in some commentary on the Schiff memo. And speaking of Russia, we also will talk about a Kaspersky Lab lawsuit, actually a pair of lawsuits, one from December, one from uh, more recently. Today. Uh, today? Is it today? Um, dealing with the aftermath and trying to fight back against uh, the uh, actions that DHS and then Congress have taken against them. I should correct myself. It was actually filed yesterday. So right, we're, we're already at yesterday's news. <laughs> it's it's um, yesterday, yesterday's news last week. Indeed. And because time will not permit, uh, we will just intersperse our Olympics-themed frivolity Amidst our comments today, let me just, before I forget, though, put in a quick plug for a TV show that Karen and I just burned through, The Good Place. Um, actually, surprisingly, amount of, uh, even though I thought it was just a ripoff on the uh, Albert Brooks Meryl Street movie, Defending Your Life, okay. it's actually really good. Is it? All right. Yes. Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to that at different points. You know, so as to foil those of you who don't want to hear all the frivolity, <laughs> uh, maybe we'll just blend it in so you can't avoid it. Oh, wait. What? Our listeners just don't went away. 
All six of them. All, all six right. of them. You can tell. So uh, we're going to dive in. First topic, Rachel Brand is resigning, has resigned. She is out after less than nine months as the Associate Attorney General. That's the number three position at the Justice Department. Bobby, you know Rachel better than I do. We both like her. We both respect the heck out of her. What do we make of this? So, first of all, I do want to reinforce that. I think Rachel's an amazing lawyer and a, a really honorable person. And I've taken a lot of comfort for knowing that she was there as the number three person. So then you're not sleeping anymore is what you're telling me. I'm not saying that, but it, it, <laughs> it's all about what comes next, um, as, as you know. From, as King George III, as King George III, might, George III sing. might sing. it. <laughs> what comes next? Hey, no singing on this show, please. It's not that kind of show. Rachel Brand has moved on to Walmart. She's got a fabulous position Um it, it is understandable that somebody would want that position. This is pretty soon, Steve. She, it was less than a year since she went into office. And, of course, immediately people start speculating, was, was it because there was something she couldn't sign off on? Is this a, is this a canary situation? We've talked, about, we've talked about dead canaries on this show before. Was this a canary? Mm-hmm. Um, you how, know, how, we're many, not in how many canaries have died since our last recording? I will say this. We, we have, there have been no... Uh, suggestions that I've seen about any particular reason she would have done this now. Um, it does seem like the sort of thing one doesn't do in, an, in a normal administration. I, I very much doubt she would have left at this point. It's easy to assume that she's kind of, at least in general, had enough. Um, well, so, so can I have two, two pieces yeah, there? Please. So the first is, my understanding, and this would not surprise me, is that this has actually been in the works for some time, um, and that this was not a sudden, abrupt no, you, don't, you don't get that job just suddenly abruptly. Um, but also, I mean, there were there were comments attributed over the weekend to folks close to Rachel um, that she was leaving basically because she just was worried about sort of protecting her career and looking out for her sort of long-term professional opportunities. Of course, which begs the question, protecting her career from what? Yeah. Well, you know, I... I guess I have a little trouble with that characterization insofar as it might imply that there's any significant uh, lawyer in a high position like that who's not um, always tending to their career. Of course they are, just as you and I are and as everyone else listening to the show does. I mean, this podcast is great for our career. We're not. We're sure aren't doing it for the direct pay, which is not paid. What are we doing? Oh, we got the cookies though. We got cookies. Cookies Cookie pay. No, so I I think that it's it's. not hard to imagine that she's looking at the whole overall situation thinking like, why am I beating my head against the wall for this situation? Why don't I go ahead and take this really wonderful job? And then NBC also reported over the weekend that there were, that she was concerned that the um, Mueller investigation might also fall into her lap. And I think that's where the oh, succession question yeah. starts getting very interesting. So that's why it's worth us actually. So to be clear, we have no idea about anything we've talked about up to this point. But here, <laughs> let's talk about something we do understand. Uh, remember, expert at nothing else. Indeed. That's uh, our, our motto. That's our motto. So so the here's the thing. There's some confusion out there about DOJ succession. Um, and I think the confusion is caused by some lack of clarity about how the two relevant statutes, the DOJ succession statute and the Vacancies Reform Act, actually interface with each other. Let me describe it, Bobby, as best as I understand it. Right. And then you can tell me everything I've gotten wrong. So... Let's start with what the default is. The default is that when the Office of Associate Attorney General becomes vacant under the Vacancies Reform Act, that particular office becomes held on an acting temporary basis by the, quote, first assistant, unquote, right, which in this case is Rachel's deputy, uh, Jesse Panuccio. Um, And so Jesse Panuccio is now the acting Associate Attorney Mm -hmm. General. That's clear, right? I mean, I right. think everyone understands Jesse is now the acting associate attorney general, which means he is the one who is supervising the various elements of the Justice Department that comes under the AAG's umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's where the confusion comes in. Um, I'm pretty sure that acting people like Panuccio don't then go into the line of succession to be the attorney general. Right. And that's where it gets interesting. Because here's where we start talking about Mueller, right? right. So Jesse Panuccio takes over all of Rachel Brand's day-to-day responsibilities. Everyone agrees right. on that. Which currently do not intersect with Mueller, but would if Rod Rosenstein is fired, right, or otherwise recuses himself from the Mueller investigation because under the relevant regulation, Mueller is supervised by, quote, the attorney general, unquote, not the attorney general, comma, or deputy, comma, or associate, just the attorney general, whoever that is, for purposes of the Mueller investigation. And since Jeff Sessions is recused, that's, that's why, why currently is Rod. If Rod is removed or something, you know, 
then I think the best reading of the DOJ succession statute is that the next person in line at that point, until there's a permanent confirmed right. successor to Rachel, is Noel Francisco, who's the right. Solicitor General. Right. So basically, it it fall it goes through who's who's legitimately holding those offices. If the I AD would say is, legitimately, who is who is holding a Senate? Who is right? Who is not? Who is not the acting? Who exactly. is not acting or person right. and temporarily holding the position? So the Attorney General's confused. We hypothesize that the deputy is removed. Um, we hypothesize further that Rachel's not yet been replaced by a confirmed appointee, and probably that will be a while. So for the Noel's time next. being, Noel is next. Um, and the reason why that's interesting is because all of a sudden we start thinking back in our history to the Saturday Night Massacre in 1973 when President Nixon wanted to remove the special counsel um, Archibald Cox Right. Um, he orders the attorney general to do it. Elliot Richardson says no and resigns. He orders the deputy attorney general to do it. Ruckel Schaus says no and resigns. Right. I think we have a whole episode from way back when called the what the Ruckel Schaus to Rosenstein yeah. Richardson. Right. Um, well, Rachel Brand is no longer it's like a triple play. She's no longer the Ruckel Schaus to Richard to, to Rosenstein's Richardson. It's now Noel Francisco. And so we have sort of a, a, a pre uh, a pre massacred lineup, right? Because now <laughs> it's it's already it's already dropping down there. Um, you know. I I don't know Noel. Um, I have no reason to think, though, that Noel wouldn't be uh, a good lawyer uh, applying the law and, and acting in good faith. And so if I de- it doesn't give me a particular heartburn uh, based on what little I know about Noel to think that Noel is somebody who's just going to say, yeah, what does the White House want? I'm down with that. I don't, I don't have that impression at all. I think that's right. I mean, I, I know Noel a little bit. Um, and, and you know, I've, I've sort of crossed paths with him usually in a professional context where mm-hmm. he and I are on different sides. Right. Say la vie. Um, I, I have – I guess I have sl- – I have slightly less faith, right, that Noel would be sort of the one to stand up to, you know, a freight train in that situation. But I don't think he's Robert Bork. Like, I don't think that, like, it's it's obvious that yeah. this that this makes it easier. Right. This isn't a panic situation. Like, oh, my no. God, now they've got a direct line to someone they know will say. No, no, no. I, don't, I, really, don't, I really don't think this is an opportunity-creating event for the Trump administration yeah. with respect to the Mueller investigation, right? If they, wanted to, if they wanted to cross that Rubicon, I think they could have before Rachel resigned, and I don't think it's any easier for them to do so now. Right. Okay. Well, that puts it in some context. In- but it will be fascinating to see if they do advance a permanent nominee to succeed, Rachel, and if so, just how um, careful and skeptical of vet that nominee gets from the Senate Judiciary Committee, given all the baggage. And I think that's, uh, on Twitter, it's where both you and I were quickly coming down, that people need to be looking very closely at that moment when it comes. Who is it? And and will the Judiciary Committee in particular do its job, the Senate as a whole, but Senate Judiciary in particular, Absolutely. by drilling in on this question? Right. Did the president nominee? ask you for your loyalty, right? <laughs> they need to be more specific than that. <laughs> um, are you someone who's capable of obtaining a permanent security clearance? Because apparently this is a thing. <laughs> that used to be a thing. Apparently, it's not a thing anymore. Well, it's the deep state, right? Apparently, the deep state is keeping people from getting permanent security clearances. Uh, that ex- that ex- <laughs> They've been doing that for years. So I just, right. want, what, just really one quick aside on the security clearances. So I just saw this quickly, but I think I saw on Twitter that DNI Coates mm-hmm. testified this morning about why it was taking so long for all of these senior White House officials to get security clearances. He said something to the effect of, as you know, it takes a while to stand up a new administration. Okay, no, right? 13 months is not how long it takes to stand up a new administration from a security clearance perspective. There is some other reason, or reasons, plural, why all of these people are having a hard time getting security clearances. I, I admire his diplomacy in that situation. Oh, it's a brilliantly, I mean, it's a brilliantly, like, perfect non-answer. Well, Coach, is, he's an old pro. Um, so speaking of things that have been around for a while, yeah. um, you got the military commission still plugging away oh, on gosh, some military cases. We have, we have to talk about those things. We've, we've got a trio of oh. military commission topics under the heading of, we started with Harvey and the Milcoms, which does sound like a band, um, <laughs> but Harvey's only really directly relevant to one of our three. Well, he's relevant to all these. Let's talk about, again, Harvey Rishkoff being removed right. uh, precipitously from the position of being the convening authority, which we've described, and this is, this is relevant here. We've described the convening authority as a as a combination of the institutional functions of the grand jury in terms of standing between the ability of the prosecutor to proceed with a case and uh, 
in vetting the charges and determine their propriety, et cetera, and an ability basically to act as a veto gate. Yep. Right? But, uh, but, 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 but unlike a grand jury, after as well as before the case is brought. Exactly. So there's that duality. And then also, it, it, you know this stuff much better than I do, but is it fair to say the convening authority also has this sort of administrative office role That's right. where both the, the office of the defense counsel and the office of the prosecutor in a variety of ways are ultimately administratively under the same common heading? So I, I don't think it's quite right to frame it as like subordination, right? I mean, so they're no, all right. they're all entities within the Office of Military Commissions within the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Um, I think it is safe to say that convening authority has a little bit of, if not formal authority, at least moral supervisory responsibility vis-a-vis the commissions. Um, and so he doesn't have a formal sort of policymaking role in this process, right. but he does have an informal one, right? And so the, this is where this comes from. There's a story, I think it was Charlie Savage, um, who reported over the weekend, or maybe it was Friday, um, that one of the apparent sources of tension between Harvey as the convening authority and his superiors in the Defense Department was a, frankly, I mean, Bobby, a long-running you know, sort of idea that perhaps the 9-11 defendants could plead guilty to certain charges in exchange for the government taking the death penalty off the table. Now, I, I agree that there's long been talk about that option. I think we've, we've discussed how there has been talk over time. Is there a way to set it up so that that can be done through the Article Three process yep. remotely, perhaps? Yep. Um, was there anything in the article that suggested that there was something particular that Harvey himself got involved in that wasn't just part of a, a longer, multi-year discussion? Yeah, that's about what's awkward. I, mean, I, I don't. I don't see why. I don't see why or how Harvey would have been the sort of pressure point. Right. In the, I mean, this conversation has been going on for a while, right? Some of the detaining lawyers have, I think, quietly suggested perhaps, you know, floating legislative proposals to make it easier for the detainees to plead their way right out of out of Guantanamo. I, I don't know why now would have been the moment and why Harvey would have been the sort of casualty of some disagreement about how to proceed. Is, is it obvious that the convening authority uh, should be directly involved in these conversations at all? Because obviously the, the chief prosecutor, right. you know, Mark Martins, can be having yeah. these conversations. Yeah. Why, why would a person who's in the position of sort of overarching neutral administrator slash grand jury, why would that person even be in these conversations? I mean, I think just more, you know, I, it's, a, it's the right question. I don't have a great answer. I mean, I think part of it is that the convening authority in the military commissions does play at least this sort of informal policymaking function, right, where, you know, he or she, it's always a he, um, can sort of, you know, provide input on what may or may not be feasible and viable. But again, I mean, I just of all the things that, of all the obvious points of tension where the convening authority would have been a real veto gate, this doesn't seem like one, hmm. right? Like, I, I'm still not convinced that this isn't about an area where the convening authority was actually acting more directly against, perhaps, the wishes of the prosecution. Well, that suggests that we need to keep watching this space because yep. it sounds like we don't really have a, a great theory of the case yet. yet. Um, yeah. But, right, um, n- no need to have a theory of the case in the Nashiri prosecution uh, where Colonel Spath is is um, perfectly happy to proceed without learned counsel. So Spath being the judge presiding over yes. over this case. Now, recall— Oh, shoot, I could be held in contempt for not calling him a judge. <laughs> We're gonna have to, you're going to have to dial into this show remotely. Um <laughs> So, as you may recall from prior episodes... Once again, I hereby authorize Bobby Chesney to act as my next friend in any habeas petition brought on my behalf. Uh, It's true that I'm undefeated in litigation, but you don't want to inquire into the details. I'm undefeated for the moment. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Any day now. (laughs) No ruling yet in Dalmazi. No ruling yet. All right. So, um, Judge Spath had uh, entered into a uh, a test of wills with the head of the Office of the Defense Counsel over whether the Defense Counsel for Nashiri, including especially the quote, and this is a term of art, the learned counsel, the death penalty law expert and procedure expert, um, well, procedure of the the proceeding, not actually administering the death penalty, uh, whether those people could withdraw. The the defense counsel office head's view, General Baker's view, was that, you know, he gets to make that call. The the trial judge's view, Colonel Spass' view, was that no, he gets to make that call. This led to a contempt proceeding. That We've gone over that in great detail before. Um, the case is moving forward now, and Nashiri's got one lawyer one left. One lawyer, and Lieutenant a, Piet, the Navy JAG. Right. A, a relative, the whole thing is like straight out of A Few Good Men. It's a relatively sure, inexperienced few- Navy. Oh, let me finish it. A Navy lieutenant. I've not seen if this guy like looks like young Tom Cruise. He doesn't. No, he doesn't. All right. Well, nonetheless, we know that that actually could turn out quite well. You know, Tom Cruise was, you're looking at me very skeptically. Tom Are you Cruise, saying that for a Tom death Cruise penalty case? Tom Cruise was defending two Marines, right, who were, who were not being tried on capital charges. They were accused of a code red. 
you go see the movie. But <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, so I, th- I think we agree that the, you know the prospect of a capital case proceeding without uh, capital counsel is built-in structural reversible error. It, it, it at a minimum, it sure is courting that type of reversal. So you kind of wonder, like, what what's the game plan here? What are, we're just are we wasting our time? They're going to spend all this time and resources. Well, I mean, listen, as you know, I think this. I think we're wasting our time on this whole case, right? Because I am still of the view that the military commission lacks jurisdiction to try Nishiri for offenses committed outside the context of the U.S. armed conflict with al-Qaeda. But one thing's for sure, and I think we agree on this, it's that if you proceed to, to the trial and, and you Without have, a learned counsel. Without learned counsel, it, it's just very easy to see that'll get reversed. So unless he's acquitted. Well, so there. Well, well, there is that, right? Let's. And as I said earlier, don't don't rule. Just assume that a navy lieutenant can't get the job done. <laughs> um, now, navy perhaps, lieutenants, we get the job done. <laughs> there you go. That was that was good. We should have said that in unison, though. We're yeah. More like mm-hmm. the Hamilton. All right. You know, some future episode we'll do the whole thing as a. You know. We really won't. Yeah. Singing the Hamilton no, lyrics? No. No? Good. The point is, Spath is, has he authorized or did he order? No, no. He, he, he just authorized This is more it? a suggestion. Okay. Tell, tell us what was the suggestion. That Lieutenant Piet might benefit from an upcoming death penalty training seminar. Right? Well, now, it, that, now that's true. As just a statement, it's true but, he would benefit. Fine. I mean, you know, we would but all it benefit. Does tend to, it does tend to raise the question, wait a minute, are, is this not Exhibit A in a... I mean, part of what you have to be a learned counsel, you have to have second chair to capital case. Yeah, that, that's a little hard to pick up at a three-day. Yeah, kind of hard to do. So I just I I, I do not understand. Uh, leaving aside the the underlying question, which Bobby, you and I have debated before to a fairly well, I do not understand why it is in the government's interest to allow this to continue. No, I agree with that. So. I also think that Judge Spath probably was in the right in assist, insisting that he should have had the last word well, here. You know, I want them to run the traps all the way to the end on that right. and find out if maybe we could proceed with learned counsel after all. Because this is stupid. No, this is this is going to be a big waste of resources and further time. Um, speaking of things that have been going on for a while, there's a there's a third Milcom topic. Darby Day. Darby Day. Uh, Steve, what is Darby Day? <laughs> well, I, I tried to explain that already. Um, <laughs> Give me the, the second dictionary definition of Darby Day. So Ahmed al-Darby is a Guantanamo detainee who pled guilty to terrorism charges um, in the military commission related actually tied to Nishiri, to the 2002 attack against mm-hmm. the French tanker at the MV Limburg. Um, and he received a 13-year sentence in, in, uh, in, as part of his plea agreement, but part of the deal was that he could serve part of that sentence um, in his home country, I think it's Yemen. Right? Oh, I thought, no, I thought it was oh. Saudi Arabia. Oh, Saudi Arabia, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, and the release date for uh, that transfer is supposed to be, I think, next week. Wow, all right. So Derby Day is whatever day next week that is. I think, I think it's the 20th. 20th? Yeah. Uh, and so the million-dollar question is, will Because he, he pled guilty on February, t- on February 20th, 2014. I think the deal okay. was yeah. four years at Guantanamo and the rest right. Right, in Saudi Arabia. Um, which, you know, hey, is the Trump administration going to transfer someone out of Guantanamo? Yeah, I uh, and so as we've talked about it before, I think they're going to. I think they've left themselves, they certainly haven't boxed themselves in on this. They've left open the possibility of uh, transfers in circumstances that result from mm-hmm. the, the court criminal, orders. Yeah, court you know, orders. I, I certainly agree with that. I just... Um, but you know they don't want to. It is not hard <laughs> to imagine a universe where part of what led to Harvey's falling out with senior authorities had right. something to do with Al Darby. And I think that if he doesn't go next week, well, so first of all, any journalist listening to this, you need to be watching this. And if he doesn't go, people need to be asking questions Why? at the various recurring DOD press briefings. Um, and I think we'll find out very quickly that this is connected if that turns out to be a problem. Indeed. But I, I think that they're probably going to, I don't see a lot of margin in this for them. So I think they're going to let him go. All right. But speaking of what to do with DTDs, we actually have a couple of interesting developments on the ISIS front, right? Pivoting radically Indeed. away from Guantanamo, at least we think. And we, and we have detainees to talk about by name who are not John Doe. What? I know. So this is a story that came up the other day about two uh, formerly British citizens, two Islamic State detainees held by Syrian Kurdish allies of the United States. Um, this is part of a group that, and, and this bugged me that they use this name, but they, they sometimes were referred to in the media as the Beatles. These were people that were uh, utterly notorious, involved in the worst of the worst uh, Islamic well, State there abuses. Well, because there were four Brits, right? Four Brits. And that was, and they, that was where they the were Beatles speaking with the British from. accent. I, I, I get it. I just don't like it. Uh, Wait, the Beatles spoke with a British accent? The Be- these Beatles did too. Uh, 
uh, the two that are in custody, it turns out, Alexander Cote, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Cote is how I'm going to do it, and El Shafi El Sheikh, um, both in Kurdish custody now, and the question has arisen, what's going to become of these folks? Um, again, the United States doesn't have direct custody, so to some extent this is a little speculative, but the way that the reporting was unfolding, it sounded as if at least there's some thought the United States is in a position to influence what becomes of them. Note that this is in context with the discussion of how the Kurds, of course, have many other Islamic State detainees as well. Um, at least one source describing it as thousands of captives. There had been previous reporting, which I think we mentioned on an earlier show, talking about how the Kurds had been trying to set up in the areas they control um, makeshift courts to process these cases. You know, So you've got military detention, but people being funneled bit by bit into a criminal process. And you hear that and you might think, Huh? So, like, are there are are there like Kurdish Syrian lawyers representing them? Like, what kind of process is going on in these courts? Not hard to imagine. It's not the most robust process. Um, what about where's the supermax in the Kurdish <laughs> uh, Syrian Kurdish controlled territory? Where's you know? And, and what's happening? Of course, is there's a lot of capital punishment going on, yes. uh, presumably, but but not in every case, I suspect. Anyways, it's all kind of a great mystery. It's it's this sort of Awkward thing where since we no longer directly administer most detentions in these scenarios out of a, you know, lessons learned from the uh, earlier uh, wave of these conflicts, um, people tend not to pay attention in our media. And yet there are still captives and things befall them. So the question is, A, what's going to happen with all those thousands of fighters? The article emphasizes that a lot of them come from outside the region and some number from Europe and that no one seems particularly uh, eager to have them come back home. And, and then what about these two in particular? Now, you might think, well, that's that's between the Kurds and the Brits. Uh, yeah, yes and no. I argued in uh, Lawfare the other day that these two, as I understand it, are at least conspiratorially linked, if not very directly personally linked, uh, to the horrific treatment and ultimate deaths of a number of U.S. hostages who were... Who were uh, you know, brutalized beyond description by the Islamic State. And I argued that gives us a particular equity and interest. We have to bear in mind that you you have a couple of interests here. One is bringing some modicum of justice to the, to the families of people like James Foley. So Guantanamo's and, out. Well, I think military commissions look really poor as an option compared to Article Three yep. civilian courts if what you want to do is get justice. And in this case, uh, I certainly think you could you could be looking at a capital trial, um, at, but at a minimum, you'd want to make sure these people are looking at life in, in supermax. And you don't want to have in a situation where the detention system is not reliable, where the prosecution system may not work, where the persons who may be in, cu- in control of their custody maybe won't even control their territory. Uh, one, two, three, five years from now. Um, and so it seems to me that in this case, we should at least strongly be considering bringing these people to an Article Three prosecution. What do you think? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I know what you think I mean, on that. Of all the things that you and I have disagreed about over the years, the, the, the viability and the desirability of using our Article Three criminal courts in cases like this, I think is last, well, second to last behind... Uh, um, Unhesitating and uh, and illogical devotion to, to the, the New York Mets. Mets. I was looking at your hat as I said this. Um, okay, but well, I can imagine you saying like, no, no, no. But we we should let the Brits take care of it, or we should go to the Hague or something. It, is there is there any more? Can you can you get to my left flank on this one? And by the way, I I, I don't like this idea that saying that somebody should be put into the uh, the the toughest aspects of our criminal justice system somehow marks out a left flank position. But that seems to be how our politics have have migrated. Um, I mean, you know, I just. So, so there. I think if if the Kurds are willing to turn these guys over to the U.S., right? I think we'll have options. But there's only one option that makes any sense to me. Right. And you know, the Brits in the past have made a whole lot of noise about you know raising hackles and causing trouble if any British yeah. and I would assume former British subjects, right? I, so are they, they had eight, eight British subjects. Uh, I think all eight of them ultimately sent back to the UK. I don't know if any of them had had their citizenship citizenship stripped as these two have. So the Brits could say, hey, the, the whole point of that was these aren't Brits. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the British position is on that. But it obviously will be far less problematic from a diplomatic perspective in the US-UK relationship if the plan is to uh, take them to the Eastern District of Virginia. That's right. Um, all right, so, so there's that. We'll watch that one. Um, I, I guess I... 
I'm a, I'm particularly interested in this one because it reminds me a lot to a certain extent of like uh, the Dakduk case in in yep. Iraq. Yep. You you get the occasional detainee who's not just uh, there because it, there there's potentially U.S. blood in their hands. Mm-hmm. And in these cases where it's hard to figure out the disposition options, we've not been great about making sure those people end up either in U.S. capital punishment proceedings or in permanent life sentence circumstances in a supermax. Um, Doc Duke stayed in Iraq and ultimately went free. And I'm, I'm still unhappy about that. I don't want to see anything like that happening here. Um, but I mean, you and I think both agree that there are plenty of available charges to federal prosecutors to levy in the Article Three courts. The charges, the charges are unquestionably there. Right. The hard question is, what kind of evidence do you have? Yeah, um, yeah. I think these two have been seen on video that will be enough to show certainly membership in the Islamic State. Right, which is um, all you need probably for twenty three thirty nine. And I think you can also get conspiracy on a variety of, of you know specific you know twenty three thirty nine A or Section nine fifty six type charges. And so once again, we're back to the rhetoric of the Trump administration versus what is by far the most obvious, safe, and defensible policy choice. Yeah. What is what is possible, of course, is that what they do instead is to bring them Guantanamo just to be detained as Islamic State members, which actually, you know, leads to the question of, will the courts, when given the chance, agree that the Islamic State is within the scope of the wait, armed conflict? Wait, wait, wait. I feel a segue coming. You do. Segway alert. Let's say it one more time. Speaking of which, Speaking drink. Of which. <laughs> uh, back to Doe v. Mattis, where oh, that gosh. question is now getting closer and closer to the merits. Now, do we have to distinguish now that there are two different... Because yeah. the, the case has now fractured. Yes. Right? Just like... Just like um, um, what is it? The new uh, J.K. Simmons show counterpart, right? Where the universe <laughs> fractures, um, or this season of Star Trek Discovery with the mirror universe. I thought that was every every season of well, every Star Trek uh, series. Don't get me that. Well, that, that depends on what it's you a, can call. A, so we got a multiverse. Can, I know. Can you call Star Trek Discovery a Star Trek series? Uh, you know, I haven't watched it, so yeah, I can't enough. say. Um, this is not like that because we don't have you know the parallel existence of you know. No, we just have two. We just now have two, two tracks. tracks. We got so, two tracks. So thread number one, and this is actually probably the easy, the shorter piece of news, um, is the government's appeal on the procedural question of whether Doe is entitled to notice seventy two hours notice before he's transferred to a third party country. Um, Judge Chutkin said yes. The government is appealing that to the DC Circuit. The D.C. Circuit has accepted the government's unopposed request to expedite that appeal. Um, oral argument is now set for April 5th. Um, so we should actually get that resolved pretty quickly. Um, we'll know more about the panel, for example, um, and the briefs and such um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so In the meantime, you know, though, this certainly shows you that this, this guy ain't going anywhere for six no, weeks. Yeah, at least. Um, all right. And then there's the sort of more interesting track, which is the, you know, path towards some kind of merits resolution in the D.C. District Court, where, as Bobby said, the government has filed its return, although it's still under seal. We are anticipating an unsealed version hitting the public record soon. soon. Um, but we have some sense of what the government's argued, because on Friday, the ACLU filed an unredacted response to the government's return. So, Bobby, what do you think some of the highlights are? Well, okay. So first, I can say it's so funny that um, so we don't have the we don't have a public version of the return, and yet there's loads, you know, quotes from it and all kinds of descriptions of the argument in the entirely public, uh, you know, ACLU brief. But for that, as as outside observers, we can only say thank you, and it was nice to get a glimpse into it. Indeed. All right. So um, let me give a quick rundown. I, I will kind of give the the general overview. Um, there's there's a couple of premises, and I'll try to lay out the framework of ACLU's argument. And, and in doing so, it'll it'll draw out what we can see so far of the government's actual positions, with the caveat that it's entirely possible the government's positions are slightly different from what has yeah. been stated, or more complete in some way. Right. We're 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 we're, we're trying we're using the shadows on the wall of the cave to figure out what, what what the world looks like. There you go. Okay. Bring the torch a little closer. Okay. Here, I see it. Um. So the the main wow, thing. Wow. I really is, just did a parable of the cave reference. That was I? nice, and I yeah. tried to pick it up. And that was so dorky. Let's move on. Um, A citizen, this is all about special status of citizens. The basic principle that's been asserted here is that for both constitutional and statutory reasons, the rule is that a citizen can't be detained without trial unless Congress has said so in a particular statutory way or has done so specifically in a statute. Uh, This rule is said to derive both from the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause uh, and, you know, ex parte endo, Hamdi, Salerno, all cited there. Uh, and then separately, and this is where most of the weight actually is, because it's more, much more clearly, you know, it, it definitely applies for, for whatever it turns out to be worth, the Non-Detention Act, our old friend, 18 U.S. Code, that old chestnut drink, Section 4001A. Um, and that, it, 
let's focus on that because you can kind of go round and round about does the due process clause really specifically require this? I don't know, but Congress said so. Uh, they said, quote, no citizen shall be imprisoned or otherwise detained by the United States except pursuant to an act of Congress. Okay, that, that's pretty straightforward. Sounds like a great topic for a student note. Yeah, no, it's been done to death. Yeah, it really has. The field's been plowed. Um, so there are a couple of issues. So one is an interesting threshold issue that, that the ACLU's uh, response sort of says, like, well, I can't believe we're even having to talk about this. But I think it's a little more interesting than they're letting on. And I can't wait to see how the government actually framed it once we see their argument. And that is the possibility that the Non-Detention Act should be read not to apply at least to certain war-related detentions. Now, the reason that seems ridiculous and the ACLU to some extent is justified in saying, wait, what? Well, you know, wasn't wasn't that sort of settled in Hamdi, right? Um, or wasn't or wasn't it even better? Wasn't it clearly foreclosed by the fact that the Non-Detention Act itself was in no small part uh, a response to the Japanese internments to make sure that that wouldn't be lawful again? And the Japanese internments, of course, were a war-justified deprivation of liberty without statutory authority. And the reason I think that there's there's at least room for reasonable discussion of the issue, even if I think ultimately the statute's pretty clear and not having such an exception. Um, the Japanese internment, Steve, I think it's fair to say that whatever they were, uh, it was not claimed by FDR's administration that that was simply an application of the ordinary law of armed conflict, which authorizes such a measure, but rather was an assertion of executive power, kind of full yeah, stop, and, on an emergency basis. And it wasn't technically, I mean, you know, if you want to sort of give the government's argument its best possible footing, right? And it wasn't even military detention, right? I mean, the War Relocation Authority. It was administrative detention. It was administrative, and it was civilian. It was the Justice Department. Right. So so the idea would be that, look, it's actually at least an open question in terms of what the legislative history and the and the justifications for the, for the act were. You could say that it, it's not at all clear they actually ever even thought about whether and how this would apply if you had the easy case would be POW detention. Yeah. Uh, the harder case would be uh, something like this, where it's a claim that's more contested, but nonetheless a claim that the law of armed conflict authorizes this kind of detention. So, so I think so, it's probably not going anywhere. So, so I mean, it's certainly true. I mean, so I pulled up the quote from Hamdi because you and I were trying to figure this out lunch. So in Hamdi, in her plurality opinion, Justice O'Connor says, because we conclude that the government's second assertion, i.e. that the AUMF authorized Hamdi's right. detention, um, is correct, we do not address the first, that the non-detention act doesn't even apply. Exactly. So it is an open question. Okay. Um, that, well, so hold on a second, right? <laughs> we are forgetting that, the, so this, you know, this is where student notes are, student notes for the win, right? Um, the, the <laughs> I'll be the judge of that. The only other time the Supreme Court has interpreted the non-detention act was actually a 1981 case called Howe versus Smith, which had nothing to do with law of war detention, but where the court went out of its way in a footnote to say that section 4001A applies, quote, to detention of any kind, unquote. Now, in that context, it was because you had uh, a state prisoner who was being held in a federal prison due, thanks to an agreement between the state of Vermont and the Bureau of Prisons. Um, and what the court was saying was, listen, this is not about whether the detention is criminal or civil, right? This is about whether you are being held by the federal government. So I think it's certainly true that you could distinguish that case on its facts. Sure. I think a fair reading of Howe versus Smith is that Section 4001 is about any detention by the United States. And then we get to the real question, which is, all right, do we has have Congress statute? authorized it? Right. Now, I, I totally agree that's where the real action is. I do think that Howe doesn't quite dissolve, dispose of the issue oh, because it's that. so easy to distinguish it in that respect. I think that the much weightier objection and the one that I think the courts ultimately will attach themselves to is the language is pretty plain. Yeah. It says no. Or otherwise detained. No, no one, no citizen shall be imprisoned or otherwise detained. Right. Except so, so imprisoned or otherwise detained. Yeah. Right. So the or otherwise detained right. seems to be a sweeping clause. Right. So, so I think a properly, you know, sufficiently invested judge could decide right. to you know, carve out the implied term. But at the end of the day, you probably need, unless you're going to indulge in an Article Two override right. argument, which, which is a whole know, separate we'll issue. Um, and, so, and, and it's worth saying. I mean, the Second Circuit at least did expressly hold right that the Non-Detention Act does apply to military detention. Now, of course... Alas, they're not in the Second Circuit on this one. Well, the case one. is not in the Second Circuit, and that decision was vacated on procedural grounds. There's that, too. But I'm just saying, like, I, you know, I think I, I think it's... The, I agree that the question is not settled. I disagree yeah. that it's a close call. Yeah, I, I'd say it's not a 
I would definitely not say it's a toss-up. I'm not saying that. Yeah. I think that, indeed, I'm, I'm trying to be clear that if, if I'm deciding it, I'd probably construe the statute to be sweeping, as you say. But I think it has to be argued and defended. And I think it's reasonable for the government to take the other position and try to – I don't know if it's reasonable to try to do it, but it's a reasonable position for them to take. Now, we both agree the real action is – does an existing statute authorize the detention? It doesn't have to do it in so many words because the Supreme Court in Hamdi allowed the 2001 AUMF to do this work in a somewhat but not perfectly analogous fact pattern. There you had a U.S. citizen. He was captured overseas by proxy allied forces and then turned over to the U.S. in theater. That was Hamdi in Afghanistan alleged to be carrying arms or bearing arms for the Taliban. That's basically the allegation as near as we can tell transferred over to Syria instead of Afghanistan, Islamic State instead of Afghan Taliban. Um, and so the question that's put is the one that many of us have been saying looms out there, unresolved by the courts. All these years, we've been fighting the Islamic State under color of the 2001 AUMF. That is, is the Islamic State really within its scope? And, and the best way to understand ACL's ACLU's uh, response brief is it's sort of a full-throated statement of the position that it shouldn't be. And it, it emphasizes all the things that, that are familiar about that particular debate, the idea that the Islamic State as a successor organization to al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, didn't exist at the time of 9-11, didn't exist until much later, that, that it had a break with al-Qaeda and has gone off on its own. And, and so if, if one thinks that those factors make it impossible to construe the 2001 AMF to encompass the Islamic State, then it's going to lead to the conclusion that there's no statutory authority, unless you think the 2002 Iraq AUMF applies, which is a bigger stretch. Um, the part of the brief that I, you know, I, I absolutely did chuckle out loud and, and much appreciated, there's a, there's a page of quotes that are contemporaneous from when Obama first, uh, his administration first articulated the 2001 AUMF does apply to the Islamic State theory. And they, they've got a, a quote from me on Lawfare saying, you know, basically, <laughs> what, a, what a ridiculous argument that is. And we've got a quote from Jack Goldsmith saying the same thing, from Jen Daskal saying the same thing. Um, it, it, is, it is funny to read. And, I, and well do I recall, the first time I heard it, I thought it was ridiculous because what I knew about the Islamic State at the time was, yeah, it, it had its members had once been in al-Qaeda in Iraq, but there was there had been this breakup, et cetera. Um, I am definitely on the record long since then have, as having considered more carefully the government's argument and deciding that it's not ridiculous. In fact, it's very sensible. It does require you to be willing to read the AUMF not only as having the implied associated forces term, a, a reading which is was interesting and debatable before the, the NDAA in 2012 uh, adopted that approach, but I think is no longer tenable. You can't contest it in that respect. Um but then you have to go the further step and say, and associated forces status is sticky, even if you break up with right. the original linkage uh, to Al-Qaeda, as long as you're still engaged in hostilities against the United States. Now, I'm not saying that this is a lockdown argument now going the other direction. I mean, I originally did have a very bad reaction the first time I heard it, thinking this was a bit of a stretch. I think it's perfectly plausible now. I also think it's a predictive matter. It's almost certainly what the end result of the litigation will be to say, with lots of references to the fact that we've got multiple years of, shall we say, extensive <laughs> executive branch reliance in the real world, along with you know, endless gobs of funding from Congress and full awareness of all this, yeah. endorsing the combat operations in, in Iraq and Syria, I, I think it's pretty hard to imagine the court saying, like, yeah, no, no, it's just not authorized. It's actually been unlawful this whole time. Maybe. I'll just say that, you know, hard to imagine... I mean, so so first of all, right, the court could say that the AUMF actually may authorize use of military force against ISIS, but lacks the specificity necessary. Oh, absolutely. Right? That, that was my next point, right? right? So, so there's a way for Judge Chuckin to rule for Doe. Without throwing under the bus the entire, the entire military campaign. Under the bus, right? So, so I wouldn't. I, it's not either or. No, and I didn't mean. To, let me. I want to be really clear about this since I'd gone so far down the. You know, I don't think they're going to throw away the entire foundation in law of the war effort. That doesn't mean it's clear enough as to this one U.S. citizen detainee to be outside the scope or no, not, no longer impacted by the Non-Detention Act. That's a separate question. And the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2012 can't put its weight behind that point since it explicitly reserves uh, or precludes any reference to it for purposes right. of claiming there's detention authority as to an American. Well, we'll see. 
I guess that's the bottom line. Yep. Um, all right. Um, so that's dough. Um, speaking of um, waiting for things to be unsealed. Drink. Oh, that was a good. I, I, that's, I came up with that segue on the fly. Nice. Um, so there's still this Democratic memo about Carter Page and FISA, or, or are we past the story? Are we still doing memos? So um, really quickly, since last we recorded, President Trump um, declined to release, well, I should say, Don McGahn declined to declassify the so-called Schiff memo, the Democratic memo prepared in response to the Nunes memo about the Carter Page FISA application, which set off, frankly, Bobby, I think an overreaction on social media about how this was what? hypocrisy and this was, you know, ridiculous. Social and, me- no, no, social media doesn't overreact. Well, but See, I mean, you know, ever. We, we had speculated all along that the Schiff memo because it was probably more thorough yeah, and more convincing point, yeah. than the Nunes memo, actually probably did include a fair amount of pretty significant and highly secret classified national security information, and that declassifying it in full was actually going to be completely unpalatable to the intelligence community and even perhaps to the White House. And perhaps quite properly and so. Who, well, so this is the problem, right? So if the president had any credibility, Right. Yeah. This wouldn't have produced this reaction. Agreed. Uh, so, do you think it's even possible that in in going at, when Schiff and his staff and everyone's going over the memo, deciding like, well, how much should we self police on this? That they were mindful that the chances are very good the White House is going to ding them for something. Yeah, maybe. And, but and so so maybe they decided, look, it's going to be a process. Let's and let's maybe get the ball may, maybe even let's put them in a position where they're going to feel obliged to ding us. For something, and then we can, you know, kind of ding them right back for doing so. Well, maybe. Although I think the right answer here is a compromise, right? Is that, and 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 by all accounts, that is what is happening, right? right? Which is that this is not like no, the memo is never going to see the light of day. This is now right. DOJ intelligence community folks sitting down with the House Intelligence and Committee, then it can come out. And, and I think out McGinn, a McGinn's letter, I think, actually anticipated this is just what would happen. And frankly, it, that's the right thing. Yeah. Right. And, and and if Schiff is ultimately unhappy. With the result of that process, then we can freak out. And well, and then he has other avenues available to him, right? Well, Including right. Um, reading it into the record on the House floor, right? Or pushing for the entire House to vote to override the president's decision. Um, the former strikes me as more politically feasible than the latter, but we're not there yet. Yeah, I agree, and I and I, and I suspect, as I think you do too, that something's going to come out, and uh, you know, for better or worse, we'll have a whole other round of news cycles uh, on the memo, which really wasn't a thing. All right. Um, Speaking of Russia. Speaking of Russia, Kaspersky Lab has uh, got not one but two lawsuits going in the wake of problems um, with, er, let me step back. Last year, famously, uh, first DHS uh, did a a very novel thing. It exercised its mandatory regulatory authority over other parts of the the non-military, non-intelligence parts of the government in terms of what kind of cybersecurity uh, measures they're taking. Uh, th- this so-called binding directive was was an authority they've had, but they hadn't exercised. They issued a binding directive basically saying no more Kaspersky Labs products or services on U.S. government systems. This is really remarkable. It's kind of like getting the, the death penalty for your product in the uh, government purchasing uh, ecosystem. Uh, there's a lawsuit already from December 2017, Kaspersky Lab versus DHS, that challenges that decision, uh, arguing that it's a violation of due process. Separately, we've since had the enactment of a new National Defense Authorization Act, which contains a bunch of language that, uh, by name, identifies Kaspersky Lab and forbids reliance on its products in similar fashion. No department, agency, organization, or other element of the federal government may use any hardware, software, or services developed or provided in whole or in part by Kaspersky Lab. Right. And so now that one has just become the subject of another lawsuit, this one, Kaspersky Lab versus the United States. So they're they're objecting to two very similar measures. One's the DHS regulatory decision. One is a statute, uh, but both banning Kaspersky from U.S. government products. So the first thing to say is, of course, whatever the merits of it, this is, this is certainly something one might expect to see a company like Kaspersky doing to try to fight back. You need to be seen to be fighting back if you're going to try to preserve your, your market position at all, try to re- rehabilitate your reputation. But let's just consider the legal merits. We, we don't need to speculate on everyone's motives. Um, let's talk first about the uh, – actually, let's talk about the the attainder claim first. Ah, 
the bill of attainder clause. Yeah. So, uh, what's your general reaction? Or actually, before you get to your general reaction, lay out lay out some doctrine for us. So, the bill of attainder clause, Article One, Section Nine, although it's also in Article One, Section Ten, because states can't pass bills of attainder yeah, either. That's right. Part part of the uh, you know original constitution. Original federalism. Yes. Um, so, the bill of attainder clause is basically this idea that the constitution forbids what's called legislative punishment. That Congress cannot purport to um, basically usurp the judicial power by imposing guilt by statute. Um, now, the most obvious way Congress would do that is by saying, uh, by law, Bobby Chesney is hereby adjudicated guilty of, you know, yeah. uh, being a Spurs fan. And so too his sons and heirs for four generations. Um, or... Indeed. Um, right. Um, right. Because that's, anyway. That's the sort of thing that used to happen sometimes. Indeed. Um, now, the problem is that over the year, the problem or the upside is over the years, the Supreme Court has actually interpreted a tender a little more capaciously than direct uh, legislative uh, imposition of of criminal punishment. Um, civil punishment is also now understood to be within the ambit of the Bill of Attainer Clause. So, for example, um, Congress couldn't pass a statute where it says we adjudicate, um, you know, some company guilty of massive environmental pollution and fine them $10 million. Seems fair. That would be a textbook violation of the Bill of Attainer Clause. And so Kaspersky says, ah, nice doctrinal expansion. That picks us up. We've been determined... Uh, Persona non grata in the in the market th mm -hmm. by by the government. We've been named individually, therefore, violation. But maybe that's not so easy, eh? Well, so it's it's not so easy. Partly, I mean, the Supreme Court has never had a case squarely on point. But there is a 2010 decision in the Acorn case, um, in case in which I was an amicus, ultimately on the wrong side, um, where the Second Circuit actually says um, it is different, right? It is not punishment when the government refuses to fund. Right, so as opposed to a direct fine, which the case law quite clearly establishes is punishment, a government decision refusing to fund and denying government agencies from funding particular groups who are identified by name, the Second Circuit at least has said, does not violate the Bill of Attainer Clause. All right, so on one hand, we know that it's not okay. It's a violation if there's a express attempt to find someone, to penalize them. In to deprive way. them of their property. But on the other hand... It's okay if you refuse to affirmatively issue a grant or here, the, the million-dollar question or the, the $10 million question right. or however many millions they're asking for, uh, to refuse to allow contracting. Is that closer to being a grant? There goes my phone again. Darn it. Is That's that the question. Yeah. Right. So, so if you accept that the doctrine draws a bright line between fines and grants, on which, uh, on which side of that line does a no-contracting rule fall? Yeah. Now, the, the, the new case was filed in the D.C. District Court, so they're not bound right. by the Second Circuit's acorn decision, although I don't know why anyone would be in a hurry to, to distinguish it. Yeah, and, and I got to say, this, you know, the, the, we won't contract with you sure sounds like uh, closer to we also won't issue the grant to you versus, than it does versus to we are we are Because here's the problem, right? Like the, I don't think that acorn is necessarily right. I mean, I, as I said, I was on the wrong side of that case as an amicus. But if you take acorn as good law, right, then the proposition is that it's only punishment if you're being deprived of something to which you had an entitlement. That's right. Well, because this starts to become sort of a procedural due process question, which leads us to their earlier suit. They yep. were already trying to object to DHS having made a regulatory determination that Kaspersky products were unsafe for use and therefore banning Kaspersky that way. Now, uh, let's be clear. So that didn't present as a bill of attainder case because it was an executive branch action, but it's an executive branch action under delegated authority. Kind of interesting to observe that somehow it becomes okay as long as you've delegated the authority and then the executive branch actor makes the call. Either way, it's not a judicial proceeding, Steve. So why... Why should why should that suddenly be okay, whereas a bill of attainder in the more direct classical sense is not? Well, so now we're back to right the analogy to the foreign terrorist organization designation process, right, and how much process entities are entitled to before the executive branch decides to put them on a on a bad list. Exactly, and that's why that's why the first suit, as I uh, commented at the time, the first suit is very unlikely to succeed because something very similar came up with the uh, uh, designation of foreign terrorist organizations process, which like in this case, uh, makes some use of classified information, like in this case sometimes occurs without uh, advance notice to the soon-to-be uh, out-in-the-cold party and did result in lots of litigation. The uh, There have been a whole series of, of suits in the 90s going into the post-9-11 period in the D.C. Circuit involving various iterations of the Iranian dissident group, sometimes known as uh, Mujahideen Akalk, or National Council of Resistance. There's all sorts of different titles. 
the, the case that I think is most on point here is the 2001 D.C. Circuit ruling National Council of Resistance versus Department of State, because the State Department in that instance was the regulatory designator. Uh, it's 251 F3-192. Um, so first question, can a foreign entity invoke the Fifth Amendment in the first place? Well, in this case, you know, the, the suing entity is the American-based Kaspersky Lab corporate entity. But even if they were a, uh, a fully Russian entity with no U.S. presence, um, if, if they were a fully Russian entity with no U.S. presence, they would not necessarily be able to invoke the Fifth Amendment. But they clearly do have a U.S. presence. So even if identified as a Russian entity, their U.S. presence is enough to give them Fifth Amendment due process protections. And that's that's exactly what the D.C. Circuit concluded in the uh, the National Council type case. Um, so and Kaspersky will satisfy that inquiry. They get to raise the right. So then the question is, what processes do in a case like this? And Question one under that heading is whether there's a requirement of advance notification that an adverse action is about to be taken. Right. DC Circuit said no, not always. Uh, it depends. The, here's the the key: the case for not giving advance notice to the sort of to be sanctioned entity. Um, that's got to be explained. You can't just have a general principle of non-denial. There's got to be sort of a good faith justification. Um, I don't think there's any doubt they can come up with that here, but you never know. Um, next question. Does the impacted entity get to see every bit of the government's evidence that's being used to justify the adverse decision? It, you know, once it gets its chance to challenge the action, which apparently would be after the fact. Um, and the D.C. Circuit's ruling was, well, some of it will be unclassified, and certainly the litigating entity can see the unclassified material. But insofar as there's classified stuff, here's what the co- court said, quote, the classified information can be presented in camera and ex parte to the court under the statute, and that's referring to the Foreign Terrorist Organization statute. Uh, this is within the privilege and prerogative of the executive. We do not intend to compel a breach in the security, which that branch is charged to protect. So would the same thing apply here with Kaspersky and DHS being the entity acting under its very different statutory authority? Um, or is that somehow a rule that was only in place for the foreign terrorist organization designation process? Um, basically, I'll just sum up saying like it's very hard for me to imagine that the rule would come out differently in this case. Uh, no matter what the statutory language might vary from one to the next, at bottom, the courts are not going to compel a disclosure or, no. or put, the, put the government to the gray mail, the impossible gray mail situation where you can either reveal your classified information right. about Kaspersky or let them back in. I think the attainment claim is more interesting, right? Much more. And I think part of why it's more interesting is because Cause it's I don't you know whatever the bill of attainer clause does or should be read to prohibit I'm not wild as a policy matter about Congress singling out particular groups right or or firms or people and blacklisting them the way that basically Congress did in the NDAA. Here's a question is and I haven't looked closely to pin it down but is the statute doing any work that the DHS binding directive isn't already doing because if not. It becomes more tempting, more cost-free for the court to actually look into this. Does the DHS directive bind non-DHS entities? Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's applicable. Their authority runs to all the non-military and intelligence aspects of the federal government. Yeah, but I government. think the statute applies even to the military folks, right? So I think yeah. that the, I think well, I think the military had already taken this step. Yeah. But but, but yeah. there's a difference. But listen, the, there's no the government cannot be compelled to 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 buy its goods. Right from a particular provider, right? So if the if the military turned around and said we have we you know we're not going to buy our, our our antivirus software from the North Koreans, right? Right, like you know that's yeah. their prerogative. Yep. Where, where things get dicey is where Congress says, right, we are forbidding the executive branch, even if it wanted to, right, from buying from these providers based on some legislative assessment of malfeasance. The whole point of the Bill of Attainer Clause is those kinds of judgments are meant to be made by courts, not legislators. How come this isn't a problem, though, under the the, the power of Congress to regulate foreign commerce includes the power to uh, cut off foreign commerce in whole or in part sure. and to embargo particular entities, yeah. to embargo particular nations? So why isn't this... A f- is it is it that ah, but it's not wholly foreign here. I think it's that's because the it's because you have a U.S. based company. And I think that's been, that's the issue, right? Yeah. Is that the U.S. based company as a U.S. juridical person has U.S. constitutional rights? Yeah, I think that's probably that's probably the complication. So that'll be kind of interesting to see. I think so. I think we agree that the bill of attainder argument is much more uh, interesting. Yeah. 
I think it's probably the case that it has little practical effect since yeah, yeah, they're yeah. barred by all the uh, the the executive branch decisions anyway. No, no, but 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 long term as both a sort of you know academic con law matter and as a long term like legislative practice yeah. matter. Like this would be good. This would be good an exam question for anyone who actually teaches the Bill of Attainder clause. Do you? Uh, not currently. No. <laughs> next year. <laughs> yeah, it's not. We're not doing that in cybersecurity this spring. Um, speaking of things we might teach next year, some breaking news over the wire as we're sitting here. Ooh, I don't even know. A second federal judge has issued an injunction against the rescission of DACA, um, right? The deferred action for the, the government tried to rescind the deferred action for childhood arrivals program. Um, we know already that Judge Alsop in San Francisco had enjoined it. Um, now a judge in Brooklyn in the lawsuit brought by New York Attorney General Eric Schneider. Let me ask the million dollar question. Is it a nationwide injunction? Um, I don't think it matters because there already is one from California. No, I know. Well, no, it matters. Hey, there's there's a robust ongoing debate. How, how widespread is this new phenomenon? Well, what, the reason why I don't think it, but there's another reason why I don't think it matters, which is the Supreme Court is set to decide this Friday on the government's petition for a writ of certiorari before judgment to review the San Francisco judge's uh, mm -hmm. ruling. And so I suspect that, you know, by Friday afternoon, um, DACA is going to be added to the Supreme Court's docket for the uh, <laughs> upcoming uh, last end of this term with a decision by, by June. So you're saying the DACA docket and Darby Day are both upcoming? The DACA, the DACA docket and Darby Day are both in the, in the immediate... Uh, and I'm reaching for a D word. I'm not coming up with anything. Dispositional uh, uh, diaspora is the dilemma. Let's, <laughs> let's stop. On, on that on that D note. Okay. Uh, so we promise not to bombard with frivolity. And Steve, how how far in time are we into this? One program? hour and seven seconds. Okay, let's stop. <laughs> uh, wait, you don't have any any dramatic words for our listeners on the way out this week? I did that that one time. And I'm it was not, I'm great. Not, I didn't hear. I didn't hear much today that got me wound up. All right. Well, pitchers and catchers are reporting, so let's go Mets. That'll get me wound up. Follow Bobby on Twitter at Bobby Chesney. Follow me at Steve underscore Vladek. Follow the podcast at NSL Podcast. And please spread the word about the podcast. We really want to spread the love, spread the frivolity, spread the cookies, spread the cook. That now there's a good name. Yes, spread the cookies. Spread. On that note, we'll talk to you guys. Hopefully, not oh, until wait, next wait, week. Before, before we go, wait, late, what? Late breaking news. More late breaking news. Late breaking news. I was just glancing on here. DOJ has announced that Chelsea Bomber, Chelsea, New York City, Chelsea, Chelsea Bomber, Ahmed Khan Rahimi, sentenced to life in prison for the 2016 September bombing and attempted bombings in New York City. There you go. Article wait, three. The Article three courts work. How timely. Who knew? All right. On that note, we'll on, on say... that completely unsurprising and predictable and system reaffirming note, yeah. we'll talk to you next week. Stay safe out there. Adios.